You're listening to Informed, informal chats about theological topics to help us know and understand God together. Informed. Informed. Hi everyone, Simeon here. Welcome to Informed, uh, where today I am sat on Zoom with Ruth Vansovich. Hi Ruth. Hello. And with Matt Fell. Hello. Great to have you both with us. Um, thank you for your time. Um, Matt will know this, uh, but Ruth won't know that um, I like to put my guests on the spot and ask them to tell us in one minute, why are you a Christian? Ruth. Oh, because my parents modelled Christian life to me and I saw that, although they were not perfect, it worked. I saw them being loving and gracious and forgiving and kind and um, not self-seeking. And they were not saints by any sense of the imagination um but they demonstrated what christian life was to me and i saw answers to prayer as a child and then as i grew up i did a bit more rational thinking about things i read the bible for myself and it makes sense and despite patches of doubt and difficulty it continues to make sense and Mm -hmm. to just answer, I guess, my deepest needs as a human being. Um, it's so exciting to be able to be part of that adventure of following Jesus and being part of God's kingdom. Mm. Brilliant. Is it C.S. Lewis who says, I, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not just because I see it, because, but because by it I see everything else? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Ruth. Um, Today we are going to talk about creation, um, particularly focusing on trying to help us begin to get our heads a bit more around how we read Genesis 1, 2 and 3, um, but we'll no doubt talk broader than that as well. Um, this is something that both of you have particular interests in. Um, Matt, where, what, what's your, how have you come into this topic? And Because mm. it relates to your PhD in a way, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, so I suppose my, uh, like, you know, all Christians, Book of Genesis is there in my Bible, and it's, you know, a part of where I go to to feed myself as a Christian. Um, and so I, I've always loved um, these chapters of Scripture anyway. Um, with the ID course, I teach them to uh you know young inquiring minds every year come with a a set of questions and i suppose when i became a christian i had a big set of questions um you know about genesis one two and three which um you know i took a number of years to kind of work over and found myself in different camps of interpretation i suppose um but my phd project uh engages with the interpretation of genesis uh, that you find in two very influential theologians. So Augustine of Hippo from the 4th century, 4th and 5th century, um, and then Thomas Aquinas from the 13th century. Um, and both of them did a lot of thinking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and what that text communicates to us about the creation of the world, how God relates to the world, how he orders and rules it. Um, and so, yeah, I spend a lot of my time reading ancient commentaries and medieval commentaries on genesis brilliant and thinking about evolutionary questions as well i should say i'm not just kind of uh, my head in the in the 13th century uh, i i'm doing that to try and engage with evolutionary questions particularly about 
the evolutionary story we tell about human beings. Mm. Wow. Well, no doubt we'll pick your brains on some of that as we go through. Um, Ruth, you work for the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. Um, your job's not all about creation, though, is it? No, my job is about supporting churches as they interact with science to help them to do that in a helpful way, um, to help the scientists and students in the congregation and young people to do their thing and um, to be science aware and active in their outreach and things like that. So yeah, creation is obviously one of the fundamentals of that, um, but it's one among quite a lot of topics that we touch on. Mm. I feel like I, I need to issue a massive disclaimer. The three of us will hold some similar, we'll have some similarities in how we read Genesis 1 to 3, but um, the purpose of this podcast is not to um, tell anyone they have to agree with us. Um, it's not something that, you know, as an eldership of City Church, we are pushing a particular line on. Um, so please don't hear that. Um, but Matt, Ruth, feel free to be as be as guarded or as open as you want about your personal views. And um, I might do the same. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, listeners, you don't have to agree with us. Um, but hopefully some of the things we have to say might um, help us all as we think these things through. I guess just on that, Simeon, um, when, when I teach the ID students uh, about Genesis 1, 2 and 3, I try to introduce them to different, um, <clears throat> different positions that Christians, Bible-believing Christians hold and try to help them see the good, the good in each position, the strong points. And I, I just think it's so, so important uh, that we love one another well and demonstrate unity in you know our interpretation of, of scripture and um in terms of you know i mean kind of probably apparent from what i said about my phd i would take quite a uh, a kind of a pro evolutionary picture of of the history of the world but i would not i would not take a bullet for that position <laughs> um and i couldn't i could very well be wrong um and but one thing I think is quite helpful to do when talking and, and thinking about these things is to think how, like, what's the kind of most, uh, it's not the extreme position, but like, you know, how much can we affirm about what the science says to us whilst holding on to scripture, you know, and, uh, and really thinking that through to be like, just to kind of work out where the boundaries are, if that makes sense. Um, and so, you know, let, let's think about it you know the insights of evolutionary biology and whatnot and, and work out you know really what what do we have to kind of uh i guess say this is the limit to yeah. our you know understanding or not yeah if i could add to that i think for me having been part of these kinds of discussions for about 15 years in lots of different circumstances somewhere i was completely outnumbered by people who had a different view and sometimes the other way around and everything in between. I think the absolute fundamentals are thinking about how can we do justice to the biblical text? How can we understand as much as we can of God's character and take into account the full breadth of what the Bible teaches us about God's character and purposes um, and how he works those out? Um, so while I'm really happy pointing out their different positions, 
absolutely. And yeah. I've worked with people with different views, but there's a point where you have to say, in some instances, this is, you know, there are, there are some things out there that you just have to say, this is unhelpful. Let's warn people for, off this. Um, mm. So I, I imagine we're probably not going to discuss that kind of stuff today, but just because there is so much out there and especially on the internet, um, it's something to be aware of. Yeah. So Ruth, help us with a, a good starting point is to, to sort of begin with the core, um, the core Christian doctrine of creation that is relatively un uncontroversial. What are the big planks of that? Yeah, so God created all by himself, the Trinity, each member of the Trinity um, was there from the beginning. Um, no external constraints or interventions limiting what they were doing, um, uh, creating from nothing, um, I think is, is um, you know, most Christian would agree with. And it's not just uh, a initial creation, Genesis 1 to 3, but it's something that continues right up till today. God is sustaining what's going on, you know, um, in a very, um, well, we can't see behind the picture, you know, what he's doing, but, you know, without God there, it wouldn't be there. Um, creation was good. Um, and... Um, I think those are the basics. I don't know if you want to add anything to it, but I think the basic common elements are those, and I think have been relatively uncontroversial, perhaps from maybe discussions about the from nothing and occasional incursions with Greek philosophy or, or what have you. Um, it's not been one of those things that's caused massive bust-ups in the Christian community in the same way in a in the way that, you know, trying to just figure out Jesus' divine and human natures, how they interact, you know, cause massive bust-ups. But I think creation's been fairly straightforward. And when you when you talk about God sustaining creation in an ongoing way, um, how, how should we think about that? Because presumably you're not saying that um, uh, the the physical processes that God set up weren't quite up to scratch and he has to keep intervening to keep them ticking along. No, and I think you can see that in Genesis 1 to 3. He says, um, let there be lights, let them serve as signs. So he's, he's giving them a job to do in a figurative sense. Um, let the land produce living creatures. So there were hints there. Um, although I put my cards on the table, I think this is largely... Uh, a figurative account of stuff that actually happened. Um, it's um, that he's he's giving, and then obviously he gives humans a mandate. You know, so he's he's in a sense setting stuff up and giving it a job to do. Um, but then and the Bible's very clear. I mean, the language is of God doing everything. You know, he yeah. feeds the lions, he feeds the ravens, he makes the rainfall. You know, um, and I think we can't take that, you know, we, we don't know how, I mean, we can understand the mechanisms. I mean, any kid learns at school how rain happens, you know, mm. um, but how God interacts with the particles of the world, it's, you know, it's something I believe, but I don't feel the need to unpick how he does that. Um, 
it, it's not God's it's not God sustaining in the universe as opposed to it's not good it's not God feeding the ravens as opposed to them flying around and finding something to munch um that those two things are different ways of talking about the same thing um or different aspects of what's going on um I suppose uh, it's helpful. A helpful thing to to kind of bring in at this point is Genesis one isn't Genesis one and two aren't our only biblical texts on creation, um, and uh, I, I'm going to drop a controversial thing here. Actually, I think Genesis one uh, is is more about our doctrine of God than it is actually about understanding creation. I think there's other bits of scripture which probably speak about god's relationship to creation far clearer um so one which just come came to my mind uh, as we were talking about god sustaining and what that looks like is is paul when he's in uh athens at the areopagus uh he he actually very confidently the man who wrote do not be captive by you know philosophy grabs hold of some greek philosophy and quotes it to say you know actually this is what the hebrews have always known uh, and he says, in God, we live and move and have our being. Mm. Um, and so I think that's a really helpful verse there because it's kind of saying everything, you know, our existence, our movement, all our operations, all the things that we do, all the processes that make up what we are, um, all of those things, you know, exist in God in, the, mm. in a sense, not in a kind of pantheistic kind of, God is everything, but in like his sustaining of all things, he makes things occur as, you know, as what they are. He, you know, he's the one who writes the laws of physics and, and designs the way that our cells work. And, and, you know, so all those things happen in a way which is sustained and uphold, upheld by him at all times. One book that, if we're allowed to recommend books, um, that I come to time and time and time again when I'm looking at the different creation passages is David Wilkinson's IVP commentary called The Message of Creation. And mm. it, it's, it's really straightforward, um, a nice, not too heavy read. The illustrations are probably all about 25 years old by now at least, but the the commentary on, you just picks out the main elements of the different kinds of creation um, narrative throughout the Bible. It's really, really helpful. Great. Thank you, Ruth. So if we we're going to um, focus in a bit on Genesis 1 to 3, Matt, why have these chapters provoked so much controversy? Mm. Perhaps it's more, con chapter 1 is more controversial than chapter 2. Um, and the controversy tends to lie in the, the question of the six days um, that, you know, Genesis 1 is structured around this week, um, these seven days. So refer, you have these two accounts of creation, um, and the first account is structured around this week where God creates over the six days. Um, and so there's always been this question um, as far back as we have commentaries, actually. Uh, so this isn't a modern thing as this question as to were these six literal days or not? Is this uh, is this a kind of figurative, poetic piece of writing? Well, that perhaps are signs of that, you know, so maybe this this motif of a week 
you know, is, is gesturing at something. It's not literal. But then on the other hand, this is talking about something which we we do believe ha- believe happened. We do believe God created the, the world in the beginning, that, that the universe has a beginning as a kind of key part of the biblical account, that there was once a time when creation was not. Creation didn't have to be. It's not always existed necessarily. It occurs as a gift, as God's overflowing generosity. Um, and so there's this tension. We believe that the universe has a beginning, um, and so we believe that Genesis 1 is talking about something which did happen. But then on the other hand, there's this question which has always been there. Um, and even in the ancient world, uh, philosophically, uh, they, you know, the, the ancient world believed that the universe was ancient, was very, very old, if not eternal. And so the early Christians had kind of a philosophical battle we kind of have the kind of the science suggesting that the the universe is you know however million however many billion years old but back then they had the philosophical question of everybody thought the world was eternal anyway so there was controversy there um it seems to be that in the last 200 years or so a more literal reading of genesis 1 has kind of come to the surface um so that's a recent thing it's a recent thing yeah a enlightenment thing yeah it is um you don't find it in the early church um not really not in a kind of substantial kind of uh you you know you'll have throwaway comments where writers like Irenaeus will say you know go create the world in, in in six days but it's but even then it's kind of uh it's a kind of the focus is on God's power rather than on, you know, the emphasis being at six literal days. Mm. Um, and so. Is yeah. that partly, sorry, just to come back, Matt, is that partly because people were more aware of the geological record and there was no need to focus, no need to think about it before then? Because people had no idea how old the universe, the, the world was. I can't remember. Um, yeah it could well be but there's just there's not the pressure there I think it's I think often you know uh, Christians have formed their doctrine in response to challenge Um, you know and you see this again and again and it's uh, you know I guess it's a principle in all of our own lives we grow don't we in the face of challenge and adversity that's how you know you have to draw closer to God and church history says the same thing you know that it's in the face of different challenges and so I think that the challenges that the early church faced were more kind of big philosophical questions you know about you know surely the, the universe is eternal and things as change and reincarnation and all of this kind of stuff Whereas after the, in the enlightenment, you know, in the, um, in the scientific revolution, you all of a sudden, you know, uh, the focus is moved upon empirical explanation of things. You know, we, we need to have a kind of a material account of why things happened. And so the, with the focus going there, I think the church is, I had to negotiate that, this kind of materialism. And so I think that's probably pushed, you know, the church more in that direction. Yeah, and I I mean, I'd say 
now today, I think the Genesis one, there's a lot of activity around it and it drives some of the organizations that have a ministry of promoting uh, what I would call a young earth view of creationism. Um, but actually in public polls, if you ask people, you know, or, or people of different faiths, you know, what are you bothered about? It's the Genesis two is where it's all at. It's about human identity, where we're from, where we're going, and then I think theologically driving the more in-depth debates, it's Genesis 3. So it's questions about sin and suffering and the fall, I think. So yeah. it depends who you're talking to and when. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's interesting the way that that's shifted. Um, you know, so I think maybe a couple of hundred years ago, Genesis 1 was probably more the battleground because it was kind of like... The, the pressure was on a you know um, a materialistic empirical account of how the universe began and and then moving it at the challenge of Darwin um, and did God create species or not can we have another account and then I think you're right the shift as the evolutionary story about what it is to be human beings was kind of filled out the pressure then moves to too and and there's lots riding on this so um you know when we three were teenagers uh i don't know if you remember that delightful piece of modern music uh by the american band the bloodhound gang where the lyrics went you and me baby are nothing but mammals i wasn't really... a teenager but that's very nice of you to say matt it's all right <laughs> that that song um as uh, profound as it is is essentially saying, you know, because we have this evolutionary story about what it is to be humans, where we came from, that's going to define how we live our lives. We're just animals, so let's, you know, act like animals. Um, actually, often it, it, it's an excuse to act far worse than animals, but that's a different thing. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd add that I think the particularly young Earth, several thousand years old view, I think has been most popular since about the 60s and 70s um, when it, it sort of hopped from Seventh-day Adventism into more mainstream Christian sort of, well, I guess a conservative evangelical Protestant world in the US and then around the world. Um, there's, there's a lot of different factors in the development of, of those views, but I think a lot of people have arrived at the place where they've said, well, Maybe Genesis is one is, you know, in the various ways of explaining how it may not be 24-hour actual days, because as, as it is, the sun is not created until, you know, until later on. It's not in day one, um, for example. Um, there's a few hints in there, and, and people are like, well, yeah, I'm all right with, you know, maybe stuff, you know, evolved or developed or something, but then they're less comfortable with what happens with humans, so that I think... Um, yeah, I think that's where a lot of people have arrived. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I imagine that some of our listeners will have some big questions about human evolution in particular. I think that's helpful to point to Sarah Ruth. Um, let, let me throw some of the questions out that I think people might have and um, see, see what you guys want to say on them. So if, um, if, uh, Genesis 2 isn't a historical account of the beginnings of humanity. So that's the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. 
if it isn't, then, well, at what point does Genesis start being a historical account? Because I reckon Joseph is at the end. Um, and if I say that the Garden of Eden isn't, um, well, where do I draw the line? That seems very unsatisfactory. So that might be a question. People might also have a question along the lines of what you were just saying, Matt, that, well, if we're nothing but mammals, um, where's the doctrine of the image of God? What, what makes humans any different to anyone else? I, so I don't know what either of you would say on those sorts of questions. I mean, certainly using the word history is difficult when you talk about the Bible, because, I mean, 100% the things it talks about happened, you know, on the whole, apart from, you know, obviously there's some, there are some outright poems, very obviously in Psalms, you know, various, and various parts that, um, you know, maybe allegories and what have you, but the, you know, it's about stuff that happened, but our modern discipline of historical writing is quite foreign to the writing of the Bible. So I'd be more comfortable, as I said earlier, saying that Genesis 1 to 3 are a figurative account of stuff that happened. And it's been written in that way to tell us, as Matt said, about who God is. Um, using the sort of motifs and things that people would use in those days, really powerful, countercultural, quite rude about other, mm. you know, other, um, you know, people in surrounding areas um, about their gods. One um, well, and rude's probably not the right word, but you know, I, I think I think Genesis six is downright rude about pagan cultures, but you know, I yeah. I think you're right, Ruth. And then I mean. One of the, I can't remember who it was, it was another IVP writer, David Atkinson, I think, you know, so he talked about this as being the overture, Genesis 1 to 12 being the overture to the rest of the Bible, um, in the same way that if you had the experience of reading James Joyce, portrait of an artist as a young man for A-level English, as I did, <laughs> and yet the first chapter is almost... Man, it sounds crazy, you know, but it sets up all the motifs for the rest of the book, you know, and it because it's so dense, it takes quite a while to knuckle down and get into it and pull out all the themes and figure out what the writer meant. And and then I think if you read through Genesis really quite quickly, you'll realize that in Genesis 13 the account slows down, it gets more detailed. You, you, you feel like you get more of who these characters are and, you know, a normal person's life looks like, you know, it, it feels like it's doing something a bit different. I'm sure there's loads you can add to that, Matt, but... Um. <laughs> no, that's a, I think that's a very, uh, very robust answer, Ruth. I like the way that I drop uh, the Bloodhound Gang and you mentioned James Joyce. Uh, Simeon, I know who I think you should have back. <laughs> <laughs> We have to remember Genesis is it's the it is the beginning of the world, but it's also the beginning of Israel and the the people of God. And I think primarily it's it's well, I mean it's there in, in the what's going on in the chapters, you know. Uh the story of Abraham and his family takes up a far bigger chunk of the book <laughs> than God's creation of the world. Um and so really you know, 1 to 11 is a prologue for what's coming after. Um, 
and it serves some very important points you know but this this is the god of all things the creator who enters into covenant relationship with abraham this isn't just some hill deity this is this is god almighty um and you know and he will judge the nations you know like he did in the flood and um, you know and there's introduction of you know evil and why the nations are in chaos and there's violence and bloodshed in the world and all of these things um but all those things are introductions to the story of abraham um so i, d I don't think it's a it's a it's as strong as a genre change when you get into but i, I do think it's the narrative slowing down filling out bit it's more kind of detailed and down to earth all of a sudden mm. ruth said that we have our view of the genre of history is is very modern uh it's it's much more about the material causes of things you know if you're going to read a, a history of you know communist russia you're going to it's going to start with like the reasons the revolution began in the first place and you know dates and facts and artifacts and all of those things whereas i think the way that the ancient world told history was much incorporated philosophy and theology and religious poetry and liturgy and prayer in much more of a blend um and because those things matter <laughs> that those things are substantial and real um they affect how humans live their lives and the meaning of things um and i think so there's much more in the melting pot of ancient history telling mm. and i think perhaps when you get to genesis 12 maybe some of those the elements the big picture elements the philosophy the theology are slightly dialed down and you have something which resembles a, which is a bit more resembling modern history when you get to abraham i think that's what i'm trying to say is certain elements become more pronounced at different points in the story so do you think genesis 1 to 11 so ruth's phrase was describing things that actually happened but in a do you say pictorial or metaphorical figurative figurative way um, would you go there, Matt, or would you say, I'm not even sure these are things that happened, but they're stories, stories to communicate something? I mean, I, no, I definitely, I mean, I, I, I share Ruth's inclination to say these things happened. Um, uh, I think, but you are getting your, it, yeah, I, I, but I think the telling of it, you are, you're getting, kind of multiple layers upon himself so genesis uh six you got you have the story about the the sons of god the angels angelic beings coming down and impregnating human women um and those women giving birth to these these kind of giant warrior figures the nephilim and the nephilim then go and found all these cities um and essentially <laughs> what genesis is doing there is it's pointing to cultures that were well known to the ancient Israelites and saying, uh, and I'm going to put this in a quite a frank manner, just to warn our listeners, <laughs> that the, the founders of those nations are demon bastard children. It's essentially what Genesis 6 is saying, that, um, you know, that it's a demonic infiltration of the human race um, and that's how these cultures, which are scary to the ancient Israelites, were founded. And so what you might what you've got there is you've kind of got theological commentary 
and kind of satire <laughs> and history in a very broad sweeping fashion happening all at once in a very condensed form. That um, kind of blended. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think there's, there's more of that happening in those first few chapters, um, first 11 chapters that is. And the, the exciting part of the picture is what this paints about God's character, that he's, you know, the all-powerful one. He's the only God. Everything else is not a God. It might be, you know, as, you know, you might hint at the demonic or whatever, or, you know, it's material stuff. It calls the sun and the moon in Genesis 1 the big light and the little light deliberately because they're seen as gods in other cultures. He also made the stars a throwaway comment. You know, he makes the great sea creatures, which would also have been seen as some kind of divine or, or demonic. Um, and he, I mean, when you think about making of humans, you know, that's where, you know, again, you can get excited about the character of God that he's making these people deliberately out of, a desire, you know, there's a, there's a God what is in a relationship with them, a close relationship with them. They're given a purposeful, uh, dignified task. The man and the woman are both set there. You are there to rule and subdue the earth. Um, and it, it's such a high view of humankind because of our relationship and how we're created by God. This is a kind of God that you want to know, unlike some of the other gods that people would have posited at the time who were violent and selfish and lazy and irritable and you know um it's mm -hmm. just i mean that's why i come back and i get frustrated sometimes in these in other discussions i've had about creation and 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 science where we lose sight of what this is telling us about who god is i feel like sometimes we get stuck in a philosophical mode and it's sometimes a wish wishful thinking mode we've just decided um what god is like but this is a this is a loving and merciful god much more gracious than we are um much scandalously more forgiving and and tender-hearted you know unlike the kind of pagan stories of how the world began where you've often got gods beating each other up and having to subdue elements and stuff like this God just just speaks and and creation happens and then he commands it to happen and and there's no struggle God it just happens you know out of God's freedom and generosity and goodness um and but then on the other hand you know having set it up on his own he doesn't micromanage or you know we talked about him sustaining all things but that doesn't kind of squash out the actual integrity and activity of creation. Um, and so you, you see it even in, in Genesis 1, where God, when God creates the plants and the animals, he speaks to the earth and he says, let the earth bring forth. Um, and so God delegates that creative activity, the production of the animals uh, and the fish in the sea and the, and the birds in the, in the sky to to the processes of creation, let the ground bring forth these things. Um, and then, yeah, like you say, you know, he then hands the stewardship of creation over to human beings um, 
So we turn to Genesis 2, Simeon, because that was your other question, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So part, part of me wants to ask you, Matt, whether an omnipotent God can take risks, but let's put that on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, wonder, I was wondering whether one of you could sketch out um, the different views people take on, different views that Bible-loving Christians take on Adam and Eve. Um, I suppose let's go with position one, which is the kind of surface reading of Genesis 2, uh, that God formed Adam out of the, the stuff of the earth, out of the, 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 the ground. He forms the dust into the shape of Adam and he breathes the breath of life into Adam's nostrils and he becomes a living being. Um, and then God uh, so it's not good for man to be on his on his own because he can't do all the things that God's made him to be. So he puts Adam to sleep and he, he creates Eve out of one of Adam's ribs. Um, and so you have this very uh, special moment where God intervenes in creation to, and uh, I suppose miraculously above and beyond the kind of normal way that nature produces a human being creates the first humans uh, distinct and then sets them off and they reproduce and fruitful and multiply and then from them every human being comes so um, in that view other species may or may not have evolved from each other but humans did not on the there were the first ever humans were Adam and Eve, and there were none before, and all are descended from them. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That that would be that view. Um, uh, I think you know what's strong about that view is it's uh, you know it wants to be very attentive to what Scripture says. It has a very high you know that Scripture says it, so that's going to be my first port of call. Um, and you know it has a kind of willingness to kind of trust in scripture even though the world says something else and you know i i, I want to say there's some there is something good about that um you know i think there can be problems with that but i think that posture that gesture is is right and good um i suppose a question about that uh would be um besides the kind of the questions that you know a, a scientist might raise about the kind of genetic history that we've uncovered is if you if you turn to genesis chapter four um you have this very strange thing where you have adam and eve have two sons cain and abel they're the ones we've been we know about um there's no mention of any other children cain obviously uh famously kills abel um but then in his conversation with god uh, he's fearful that others are going to kill him, hmm. raising the question of who are those others? Well, it could be, you know, he's worried that later siblings might be born and they might uh, come and kill him, or he's worried about his mum and dad. Uh, but you then find that he goes and finds a wife. Where's the wife from? Yeah. And then he also goes and builds a city. Now, I know he's just killed his brother, so he may have like an over, a desire to overplease his parents, but yeah. building a city seems a little superfluous. Uh, so there's clearly other people around, and we've not been told where they come from. Mm. So that, that raises a question there, um, I think, as to, you know, is there more going on? Mm. Okay, uh, so that's view one. Is there just one alternative or is there a bit of a spectrum? Uh, I think it's probably a bit of a spectrum. So um, the the kind of the next, I suppose, simply there, there is only one alternative. The, the, the alternative is that humans evolved um, one way or another. Um, and I suppose there's 
too broad. People find different solutions for what that would have looked like. Um, so you've got someone like, uh, yeah, so you've got the kind of uh, a view, Tim Keller would be a, a, an influential, famous uh, preacher who would hold to this. Um, and a lot of people do that, um, you know, you have a you have a creature that evolves that under the providence of God evolves with a body that is capable of all, you know, lots of things. And then God breathes his spirit into that being to make it intelligible, rational and able to relate to God. So spiritual as well. Um, and so there's still a, there's still an intervention over and above the processes of Darwinian biology. Yes, yes, there is there, um, and yeah, this moment where God does something that nature in and of itself could not do, grace intervenes. Um, yeah. So, my, my, yeah, so you know, go on. You could you could take the position that he he does that for two specific hominids, or he does it across the board for a whole bunch of 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 humans and but there that's described as him doing it for two either because those two were two of many or just because they're they're literary figures right yeah yeah that's true that's right i suppose it'd be worth saying here that um i think no matter where you land on this you still have to do something with adam and eve and sin and Paul's comments on Adam and Eve in oh, Romans 5, you know, that in Adam all die. So Adam did something. There was there was a moment when a human did something that affects all human beings. Now, historically, people have gone, well, that that must be, uh, you know, he must be our forefather and sin is kind of genetically passed on. Actually, uh, my homeboy, Augustine, is largely responsible for that particular view of how we all yeah. inherit sin. Um, but I, I don't think you have to go down that line because scripture again and again will have one person represent the people of God. Scripture has a much more collective view of what it is to be human. We, we are 21st century individuals. <laughs> you know, uh, we tend to think of ourselves as our isolated islands, um, whereas scripture thinks of us more as a community. So you have kings of Israel representing the people and what happens to the king happens to the people. You have priests doing the same thing. Um, and so I think Adam, I think Adam was a historical figure and I think he was our kind of king priest um, representing mm. humans to God and God to humans. Um, so I suppose the, the third position um, would be that the creation story is kind of figurative for what God providentially did through evolutionary processes. Um, that God in his providence uh, led the evolution of a creature to the point of rationality and being able to relate to God. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the forming of the dust of the earth and the breathing of the, the spirit of life would be kind of metaphorical in that reading. But it sounds like you find that difficult come Romans 5 and the parallels between Adam and Jesus. No, I don't, actually. I mean, so my, my PhD is exploring that third option. Um, and I think because of this this concept of kind of priesthood representing the people, um, I think you can have um, 
you can you can have Adam not related to the rest of the human mm. race, but but called given this calling of representing them and whatnot. Yeah, but in your view, you still have to have a person at some point in history called Adam. What? Who? Yeah, who the Bible yeah. refers to. Yeah. yeah. The big question which comes up uh, if you're thinking about human evolution is what about the fall? where Adam and Eve sin, and the consequence of that is death. You know, God says to Adam and Eve in the garden, the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. Um, but how can we reconcile that with what we understand from evolution, where death is a key part of the evolutionary mechanism? Um, things, you know, evolve in order to survive, uh, to beat death. And so d death is a, a part of the furniture uh, you know, of the world in an evolutionary perspective. Um, well, this was a big question for me, actually, um, but I, I think there's, there's more detail in the Genesis text than we often realise. Um, and it, the thing to focus on is, is the two trees. So Adam and Eve are placed in the garden and, and we're told that there's lots of fruit there and there's two trees in particular that are very special. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they're not to eat from because if they do they'll die and then there's the tree of life um and we don't learn all that much about it um until uh adam and eve have actually sinned so if you look at genesis 3 adam and eve have sinned and god uh knows about it and you have this kind of discussion i think within the godhead um where God says, you know, uh, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, least he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden in order to keep them from eating of the tree of life. And that implies that their immortality, their, their living forever and not dying, was dependent upon their proximity to the tree of life. Um, that immortality wasn't a natural characteristic to them, but was a, a gift of God, that he gave them the tree of life to eat. Um, and so that says, in my mind, that, that then reconciles the question. Uh, and answers it that you know if human beings evolved and then god entered into relationship with them they had immortality in relationship with god and what happens at the fall is they break that relationship they turn from the one who is light and life into darkness and death um and god has to hand them over because he will not allow evil to exist forever yeah that's really interesting we should wrap up, but it would be lovely to hear a final word from each of you. You know, next time one of our listeners opens up the start of Genesis, what do you want them uh, to remember? I think I want them to remember that this is this is written to help them know and love and delight in God, um, primarily. Uh, that it's it's not a it's not a riddle to be solved. It's not a, a, a difficulty that God just thought, oh, I'm going to make these chapters really strange 
so that 21st century people have a real headache when they're in the pub talking to their friends about you know what they believe um god wrote this to uh, teach us about himself and so um it's about, it's about himself and his love and relationship to us and our calling, uh, you know, our vocation as human beings. I think the, these chapters are more about identity, God's identity and our identity, than they are about the, the hows, you know, and the whens. Um, and so I, I would you know, encourage people to read it looking at that. What does, what does Genesis 1, 2 and 3 say about God? Who is he? And what do these chapters say about who I am and worship and enjoy that? So I, yeah, just thinking yes to Matt, because, because I've got to say something, I'll add something to that and say, I think push the boat out when you next read these chapters, wherever you've come from and whatever you've learned from different directions about these passages, bear in mind um, a view that many Christians hold and many Christians in the sciences um, would fuel what they do is the idea of meaning and mechanism so that the Bible is giving, as Matt said, this incredible story of meaning um, of, you know, what God is, what God is like and why he made us and what it's for and you know, all those incredible theological messages. And then the, the, that's the meaning and the mechanism, um, as you could understand any event, as, as Simeon's talked about earlier, about explanations that don't have to, that can sit alongside each other. Um, uh, I'll just take a step back and talk about a kettle. So you, you can talk about in terms of physics and movements of um, water molecules, or you can talk about it in terms of, well, British people make cups of tea, you know, and explain the purposes and, you know, philosophical or theological issues around making cups of tea, you know. Um, and I think in terms of Genesis 1 to 3, you, it, it, it's not in, the idea that many people would hold that this passage is not, it, 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 you don't have to choose between meaning and mechanism here, that the, the incredible detail and intricacy that biology reveals to us about the world that God created is entirely compatible with what Genesis 1 to 3 is telling us about the God who made it all. Great. Thank you both so much for um, sharing your uh, much chewed over thoughts with us. Um, great to be able to pick your brains. We could go for another hour, but we shouldn't. Um, <laughs> so with that, it's goodbye from me. Oh, I'm saying goodbye from me, aren't I? I'm, I'm still struggling with this, Simeon. And goodbye from me.